0: From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, November 21st. I'm Marco Werman. A ceasefire between Israel and Hamas will have reaction... Plus, we'll hear about the dangerous smuggling tunnels in southern Gaza. The walls are often thin. The ceilings are thin. They collapse all of the time. There are explosions all the time. And later, Sandy may have raised alarms about climate change. But this coastal resident in New York isn't looking for change.
1: You know,
2: we've had all the storms too. We don't really think about it. But it's not gonna. It's not gonna change the way we're living now. It can't. You know, you live for today.
3: MRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. A ceasefire agreement was finally reached, but only after another bloody day of violence between Israel and militants in Gaza. Both sides launched attacks today, even as the truce agreement was being announced in Cairo. That's where Egyptian Foreign Minister Mohammed Kamal Amr held a joint news conference with U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton to unveil the deal. David Kirkpatrick is Cairo bureau chief for The New York Times. Uh, David, why did the deal yesterday fall apart, and how did the agreement happen today?
1: Well, we don't really know, but the short answer is the application of American diplomatic muscle. We saw Secretary of State Hillary Clinton in Jerusalem, Ramallah, and Cairo. We saw Secretary of State Clinton huddle with the Egyptian foreign minister, the Egyptian president, and Secretary General of the United Nations Ban Ki-moon in the presidential palace here for hours of last-minute negotiations to try to hammer this out, and even to Delay her departure. So there was a certain amount of suspense to it. Um, at the same time, the Egyptians, uh, it must be said, demonstrated a great commitment to this deal. Uh, it's clear that they put some pressure on uh, their friends in Hamas, that is, the, the ideological allies of the new Islamist government here in Egypt. Uh, and at the same time, uh, President Obama, in his own statement, released at the same time as the press conference here, made it clear that he applied some pressure to um, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to make sure that he went along with the deal.
0: Right. Well, uh, it, reportedly, Prime Minister Netanyahu is very concerned about rockets and uh, more generally weapons getting smuggled into Gaza uh, and in turn uh, being used on Israel. So any ceasefire uh, is contingent on both sides playing nice. But how much does this ceasefire hinge on Hamas policing themselves and keeping those weapons on lock?
1: It does hinge on that. However, Egypt has also stepped in to say that it will be a guarantor, you know, that if if Israel feels Hamas has failed to live up to uh, its end of the deal, step number one is Israel calls Egypt and Egypt tries to arrange compliance.
0: Now, yesterday when you spoke with us, David, you mentioned how the conflict has uh, strengthened Egypt's hand. Um, today, Secretary Clinton acknowledged Egypt's new role uh, in the East dispute. Uh, but it's worth noting that Clinton and other U.S. officials can't talk directly with Hamas because they're uh, nominally a terrorist group. So I'm just wondering, does this make the U.S. even more dependent on Egypt to advance the peace process?
1: Well, one of the things that in retrospect was quite Telling here is that as this, as this conflict went on, as Egypt reached out again and again to Hamas, which the U.S. considers a terrorist group, uh, and began working closely with Hamas, clearly siding with Hamas, uh, collaborating with Hamas, the U.S. was silent. The U.S. did not say, you know, how dare you hold hands with these terrorists. And the reason for that, I believe, I believe in part because some American officials have told me, is a bet on Egyptian pragmatism, on the pragmatism of the new Islamist leaders here in Cairo, that over time they may may be able to help influence Hamas towards a more pragmatic direction, perhaps even ultimately towards a reconciliation with the Western-backed Fatah faction that governs the West Bank.
0: David Kirkpatrick, Cairo Bureau Chief with The New York Times. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. After the ceasefire was announced, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said he agreed to the truce after consulting with President Obama on the phone. But Netanyahu also warned that Israel would consider more severe military action against militants in Gaza if the truce fails. Earlier in the day, efforts to reach a ceasefire deal were set back, not just by the ongoing violence in Gaza and southern Israel, but also by an act of terror in the streets of Tel Aviv that injured more than two dozen people. The World's Matthew Bell reports.
4: A bomb exploded on a city bus just after noon, close to Israel's defense ministry building. But Israelis are practiced at cleaning up after terror attacks. And an hour later, the bus had been towed and shards of glass swept away. Eitan Schwartz is a spokesman for Tel Aviv's mayor. I asked him how the bombing and the rockets fired toward the city from Gaza in recent days have impacted people's lives.
5: I have kids. My kids go to kindergarten. They went to kindergarten this entire period. Uh, You saw people going on with their daily lives. And at the same time, there was something very, very serious happening just 60 kilometers from where we are right now, and we were all following that with uh, with a lot of interest and a lot of concern.
4: A man named David heard the blast from his office, and at first, he thought it must have been a rocket. When he got down to the street and realized it was a bombing, he said he worried this might be the start of another terror campaign just like the years of the Second Intifada.
6: I thought, uh, oh God, I hope we are not going back to, to that uh, dark days where everything was exploded in the streets, uh, because it will really be very saddening, and it will certainly not resolve the problem that everyone is trying to resolve right now.
4: The owner of a nearby Tel Aviv convenience store is pricing boxes of Oreo cookies. The owner's son, Amit, tells me business is slow. The rockets and news of the bombing is scaring away customers. Why are we the main target, he asks. Tel Aviv is where the most left-wingers in the country live. These are the people who want to make peace with the Palestinians. Amit says he's definitely not a left-winger, but whatever their politics, most people here are crossing their fingers tonight that a ceasefire will hold. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Tel Aviv.
0: In Gaza, news of the ceasefire deal was greeted by celebrations, but just before the truce went into effect, there were more rockets fired into southern Israel, and there were more Israeli strikes hitting targets in Gaza. The building housing the Gaza office of the French news agency, AFP, was hit by two strikes. No one in the office was hurt, but a child was reportedly killed in a building nearby. Sarah Hussein works there for the AFP. We asked her earlier to describe the reaction in Gaza to the ceasefire.
7: Well, at the moment, what we're seeing is uh, people taking to the streets. Uh, At the moment, we're talking about hundreds, at least, in different places in Gaza City, people chanting um, that the resistance has been victorious, and uh, people firing guns into the air to celebrate. Uh, Mosques throughout the Gaza Strip are also broadcasting messages, celebrating and encouraging people to celebrate the announcement of the ceasefire.
0: Now, Sarah, also uh, today, a bomb went off on a bus in Tel Aviv. I know you're not there. You're in Gaza. But it was apparently cause for some celebration in some parts of Gaza. What else can you tell us as to any connection between Gaza and this bus bomb?
7: Yes, it's true, and and we reported that there were uh, some instances of celebration. They seem to be fairly limited. Uh, At least one mosque in Gaza City by actually one of the hospitals that has received a lot of the victims of the violence here was welcoming the explosion in in Tel Aviv. But as I say, it wasn't a a sort of huge mass celebration here, and we haven't heard any of the groups in Gaza take responsibility for it, although we did see statements from both uh, Hamas and Islamic Jihad welcoming the operation and calling it a natural response to the violence that we've seen in Gaza.
0: So what does this truce mean for families in Gaza? Some are celebrating, but when that stops, what's next for them?
7: Well, I think that uh, what people will hope to see after the end of the celebrations is that the truce actually takes effect on the ground. I think that among the average uh, Gazan family, there's probably still some concern about whether the truce will actually hold or not. This is a process that has gone back and forth, and uh, there have been hiccups and, and delays along the way. So I imagine there will be some level of concern among most uh, Gazans about whether it will actually hold, but certainly a lot of hope and, and desire to see the, the truce hold and life return to something resembling
0: normal. Sarah Hussein with the French news agency AFP in Gaza. Thank you so much. Thank you. Israeli strikes in Gaza didn't just hit buildings. They also targeted a vast series of underground tunnels that run between Gaza and Egypt. James Varini writes about his journey into those tunnels in the latest issue of National Geographic. Varini says the system beneath the town of Rafa is vast.
8: When you go down to Rafa in the Gaza Strip, and leave the town and come upon the Philadelphia corridor, Philadelphia route, as it's known, this this sort of buffer zone between the Gaza Strip and Egypt. You, As far as the eye can see, there are white tarpaulin tents, um, all of which cover tunnels, a vast expanse. You can't even see beyond it when you look in either direction. So what do
0: people actually use the tunnels for? What's going on in there?
8: Well, there have been tunnels there for a long time. There's been smuggling there ever since uh, Rafa was bifurcated a few decades ago. When you go to the tunnel zone uh, these days, what you find coming in is uh, potato chips, juice, fish, lamb, uh, that kind of thing, but also predominantly construction materials, which are for the most part not allowed into Gaza. Uh, petrol, which is not allowed in. Cooking gas, um, you know, you see... Tons and tons of uh, sandstone and rebar uh, and mixings for cement. So much of Gaza has been destroyed for a long time, but it was um, um, really destroyed during Operation Cast Lead in 2008 and 2009. Right. And it was never really rebuilt, um, and, now it's gonna, and now it's getting destroyed again and going to have to be rebuilt again. Uh, weapons as well, and notably the, the missiles
0: that uh, Hamas is launching are said to be dismantled, then smuggled through the tunnels, and then uh, reconstructed on the other side. Is there, uh, when you were reporting this story last year, was, was there any evidence of those or other weapons in, in getting smuggled through the tunnels?
8: There was no evidence, but that's not surprising. Um, Hamas and the other groups that bring weapons into Gaza, the Salafist groups, Islamic Jihad, um, there are many of them and increasingly more. um, They do a good job, of course, of uh, obscuring uh, the, the arms they bring in. It's said that Hamas has its own tunnels for such things. Uh, if not that, then they certainly use other people's tunnels and do, do so very furtively.
0: And of course, all of this is enormously dangerous, not just because we're talking smuggling in uh, live munitions and cooking fuel, uh, but because you're 100 feet down. I mean, give us a sense of just what the dangers are when you're working and being one of the smugglers uh, in, in these tunnels.
8: The dangers are myriad. They come from every direction. Um, there are constant Israeli airstrikes uh, in Rafah. Um, but even more dangerous than that, or more fatal than that, is uh, the, the the tunnels themselves. Uh, they're often very shoddily built, as I describe in my story. There are now so many of them uh, below Rafa uh, that they um, tend to (laughs) run into each other. The walls are often thin. The ceilings are thin. They collapse all of the time. There are explosions all the time, as you point out, because of um, uh, flammables being smuggled through and because the workers, despite the presence of flammables, most of the workers smoke in the tunnels. Um, In some cases, there are very uh, absurd and tragic forms of death, such as um, one tunnel operator, was tasked with smuggling a lion for the Gaza Zoo in, and the oh lion was gosh. improperly sedated, and woke up um, in the midst of the trip, and and killed some. I uh, killed at least one tunnel worker.
0: And your own trip through one of these tunnels. I mean, that must have been pretty surreal.
8: Yeah, I, I can't claim that I went all the way through. I'm far too claustrophobic uh, for that. I got down into a lot of tunnels. Getting down is not the scary part. It's when you start uh, getting down the well shaft, that is. Um, that's that's comparatively okay. It's when you start moving into the tunnel and the air starts getting thin and it gets darker and darker. That's the scary part. However, Paolo Pellegrin, the, the amazing um, Italian photographer who shot this story... Mm. Um, he's a great war photographer, and he's just fearless. So he had no problem going all the way through tunnels multiple times.
0: James Verini, he writes about the tunnels beneath Gaza in this month's National Geographic. We have a link to his article and some of Paolo Pellegrini's pictures at theworld.org. This is PRI Public Radio International.
3: The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. When the World Bank talks, global leaders tend to listen. Well, here's what the bank's president had to say this week about its new report on climate change. It is my hope that this report shocks us into action. Well, coming on the heels of Superstorm Sandy, the bank's report is the latest stark warning about what experts say lies ahead as the globe warms. As part of our collaboration with the PBS program NOVA, we sent reporter Sam Eaton to New York to assess some of the challenges.
5: Stephen Wagner knows hurricane damage. He runs a flood restoration company and has been working in Louisiana since Hurricane Isaac slammed into the Gulf Coast last summer. He came straight from there to Breezy Point, New York, a part of the city hardest hit last month by Hurricane Sandy.
9: This one blew Katrina away just in terms of sheer size. The surge, full moon, high tide when it came ashore, you know, nine-foot storm surge, just there's nothing that can stop it. Nothing.
5: Scientists are debating just how much of a role climate change may have played in Hurricane Sandy's devastation. But they generally agree that the storm was a glimpse of the future in a rapidly warming world. For his part, Wagner says he's worked long enough cleaning up after storms to be convinced that that future is already here.
9: Everything is getting bigger, coming later, and moving slower. That's the menace. You know, the slower they go, the more destruction there is.
5: Hurricane Sandy drew global attention to the growing threats from climate change. But two new reports just out highlight the risk of those impacts becoming much, much worse. The first came last week from the International Energy Agency, which advises industrialized nations on global energy policy. The group issued a stark warning in its annual report. Based on current energy trends, it said global CO2 emissions will push average temperatures up far beyond the 2 degrees Celsius limit the country set to avoid the most dangerous impacts of climate change. Then this week, the World Bank issued essentially the same warning, that we're headed for an average increase of nearly four degrees Celsius. In Fahrenheit, that's seven degrees hotter. World Bank President Jim Yong Kim painted a stark picture of such a future. There would be massive disruption
4: in some of our most basic systems, water supply, the viability of coastal cities, entire uh, populations that live in low-lying areas.
5: And the window is narrow. We've got to take action now. The question, of course, is how. The Energy Agency says to avoid catastrophic warming, the world will have to leave some two-thirds of its remaining fossil fuels in the ground between now and 2050. Others take it a step further, arguing that carbon emissions will have to drop by 80%. However you describe the challenge, it would mean a radical shift in our energy use. The problem is... There is one billion people who are at the top,
10: and then there are nine billion people in the future who want to be in that same club. So that essentially makes energy consumption potentially ten times larger
5: than it is today. That's Klaus Lackner of the Linfest Center for Sustainable Energy at Columbia University. He says the conventional view that economic growth is driven by the availability of cheap energy, mostly from fossil fuels, is still very much alive.
10: So you have to convince people that, A, a solution exists, which I don't think has happened yet, and that that solution is affordable and that it's worth spending that amount
5: of money. Lackner is pessimistic about our ability to meet that challenge, but others say there are historic precedents. Ben Orlov is with Columbia University's Climate and Society Program. Countries said, yes, it's cheaper to get slave-produced crops. We just refuse to accept them. It's something that we think is inhuman. Orlov says countries have often drawn stark moral lines on economic issues. People would
6: not accept products that are produced by child labor, and we also respect the products that are produced with certain environmental standards. So I think there's the hope that we can extend these agreements into the energy field. And some
5: solutions do exist. Renewable energy is surging around the world while costs are plunging. And nuclear power, though tainted after Japan's Fukushima meltdown, is still a low-carbon option. Meanwhile, the International Energy Agency says there are huge opportunities to cut energy use. Chief Economist Fateh Biro says the growth of global energy demand could be cut in half through greater efficiency. Without new technologies and pushing the button of the measures which make complete economic sense. Birrell's agency estimates that two-thirds of the world's potential for energy efficiency remains untapped. And then there's a fourth approach to reining in greenhouse gases, technologies to capture and store carbon.
8: Okay, so let's go to the
5: lab. Columbia University's Klaus Lackner brings me into a room filled with machines that he hopes could someday cheaply suck carbon dioxide straight out of the air and store it underground. There are prototypes for fake trees and huge sails made of material that would soak up CO2. Researchers around the world are working on similar technology, but many say without a broad economic penalty for carbon pollution, there's little incentive to adopt technologies like this. What's
10: still lacking is the political will to solve the problem. And I think that will require a change in attitude that people actually see that the risks of not doing anything are starting to get big. The question is, when do we believe uh, that it hurts enough that we will do something?
5: With Sandy's wreckage still piled along the coasts of New York and New Jersey, many people are saying that moment may finally have come, at least in the U.S. But it's no sure thing. Memories fade, and ways of life can be extremely resistant to change. Back in Breezy Point resident Maureen Logar says even after Sandy badly damaged her home climate change still isn't a concern.
2: You know we've had other storms too. We don't really think about it. You know we've gotten water. Not never as bad as this and hopefully we won't have for another 70, 80 years. But it's not going to it's not going to change the way we're living now. It can't. You know you live for today.
5: For Nova
0: and the world. I'm Sam Eaton, New York. You can watch Nova's Report on Sandy inside the megastorm tonight at 9 Eastern on PBS. And you can hear more from Sam Eaton on Sandy and climate change and see photos from New York at theworld.org. Well, movies like The Climate Have Changed a Lot take the remake of the 1984 action flick Red Dawn, which hits theaters today. So the original follows a group of teenagers led by Patrick Swayze and Charlie Sheen as they fight off the Soviets invading their hometown in Colorado. Not bad for a bunch of kids, huh? would be real proud. Wolverines! The makeshift infantry in the 2012 film includes Chris Hemsworth of Thor and Avengers fame and Josh Hutcherson from The Hunger Games. And this time they take on the North Koreans. I'm going to fight. Anybody who wants to join is welcome to it. We'll hit them on our terms. We're the Wolverines. We create chaos. The North Koreans were not the first pick for the bad guys in this reboot of Red Dawn. In fact, the new Red Dawn was filmed in 2009 and the villains were Chinese. But the film was shelved when its producer, MGM, filed for bankruptcy in 2010. It was picked up again in 2011 by a different company. But to help the movie get itself into more theaters worldwide, the invading soldiers, their flags and their military symbols were digitally altered. By switching out the Chinese for the North Koreans, Hollywood is trying to stay on China's good side. The government there allows only 20 non-Chinese films into its theaters each year. But even with that limited number, China was still the fifth biggest box office market outside the U.S. in 2010. The altered Red Dawn may now please the Chinese government, but it certainly hasn't wowed critics here. The movie's earned a nearly universal thumbs down. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Still to come on the program, the missing sexy parts in Grimm's fairy tales. Rapunzel, for example, was no tower prude.
6: In the first version, in 1812, there it is in, in plain light. She was pregnant. And it's not unusual because this is a story about pregnancy. It's full of sexuality and fertility.
0: That's
3: ahead on The World. <laughs> RISE The world is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at medtronic.com.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. The metropolis of Vijayanagar was a center of a Hindu empire in South India that lasted from the 14th to the 16th century. Now the ruins sprawl over hundreds of square miles around the town of Hampi. They include ornately engraved palaces, temples, and stone chariots. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, a remote one, so it's remained relatively unchanged over the years. But reporter Michael May discovered the site has recently undergone a controversial makeover.
10: Hampi appeals to the kind of travelers willing to go 12 hours out of their way for something different. And I'm one of them. An azure sky meets undulating hills covered with red granite boulders. Abandoned ruins dot the landscape. And then, in the center of town... There's Virupaksha Temple. The bells still call Hindu worshippers to this 15th century stone temple. Inside, pilgrims line up with an offering of coconuts or rupees for Lakshmi, the temple elephant. Lakshmi returns the favor with a blessing and a tap of her trunk on their heads. Musicians play devotional music on a stone pavilion and tour guides lead small groups through the sacred chaos.
11: For 230 years, this is the glorious time of the big Vijayanagara Empire.
10: This is what archaeologists call living heritage, an ancient monument still being used by locals. And the same was true for the Hampi Bazaar. My tour book promised a thriving 400-year-old marketplace full of restaurants and guest houses. Instead... I found bulldozers leveling hundreds of cement homes and shops, most built over the past 60 years. The air was thick with dust. Locals stood around and watched, stunned. A few used sledgehammers to pry valuable steel rebar from the wreckage. Tour guide Viru Pakshi stood outside his home, watching a lurching bulldozer approach. The front half of his home had already been torn down.
5: That's where I was born. Any minute, it's going to collapse, and they're going to you know, bulldoze it. Everything.
10: I'll come back to the fate of Viru and his family home in a moment. As I'd learned, the Archaeological Survey of India, or ASI, ordered the demolition. It's the government organization charged with protecting the monuments here. M. Nambi Rajan is ASI's archaeologist in charge of Hampi. He told me that the ASI had to take action, because people were not just living near the ruins— Some of them had settled inside ancient kiosks in the market.
2: We cannot permit the monument uh, being used as an internet cafe uh, or a hotel, a roadside eatery. That is not the um, original purpose of the monument.
10: The Hampi residents tried to fight back in court. But in April, the Karnataka High Court ruled that the people must go immediately. And the ASI gave the order to clear more than 300 homes from the bazaar, Though a small section away from the ruins was allowed to remain. Nambi Rajan says people who have lost their homes will be compensated and moved to a village outside of the protected area.
2: So, in course of time, they will uh, get good business. They can run their life without any trouble.
10: Nambi Rajan says the sacrifice is worth it. Once the modern buildings are cleared away, visitors will be able to observe the ancient structures as they were centuries ago.
2: We are only trying to increase the outstanding universal value of the monument by removing these uh, uh, illegal occupants and restoring the original character and integrity of the monument.
10: But not everyone agrees that an empty bazaar really reflects the original character of the place.
2: It's a very simplistic way of understanding these things.
10: That's Nalini Thakur from the School of Planning and Architecture in Delhi. She was actually hired by the ASI to create a management plan for the Hampi ruins. She says the ASI ignored her recommendation to work with the locals. Now she accuses the ASI of having a colonial mentality about protecting the ruins.
2: And the assumption that the moment it is clear and without people, it is safe. And that is also not true. Because to maintain these places, it is better to have people and not depend on one organization.
10: Thakur says that the locals can do a great job of maintaining archaeological sites when they're given the incentive to do so. This approach has worked at sites in Rome and Jerusalem. Thakur does agree that the bazaar was becoming overdeveloped, but she thinks the government could have found a middle ground. Her plan called for a field school in Hampi, where residents in the bazaar would be taught how to live among the ruins and protect them.
2: So that you come very clearly say what are the do's and don'ts for this, which we all follow?
10: But the court suspects the ASI had another motive beyond preservation. The Hampi Bazaar catered to backpackers who often spend just a few dollars a day. The government, she says, would rather attract wealthy foreigners to stay at five-star hotels.
2: The backpackers are better from my end because whatever they spend will be spent on the site and it will help the local economy. The five star people, when they spend, the travel agent takes off all the money.
10: As it happens, Hyatt has plans to open a hotel outside Hampi. But Viru, the tour guide who lost his home, says there's another piece to the story. He says there's been tension for years between the locals who serve the tourists and the Swami who runs the temple.
5: Because he thinks that, you know, it's not, uh, you know, it's all polluted
2: because of the foreigners, because of the hippies, because of the. You know, it's, they're claiming that
11: the has been selling.
10: Viru says that was no reason to destroy the bazaar. He thinks the police should have just stepped up enforcement. But whatever the ulterior motives, the effect for Viru is the same. He and his family will get a bit of compensation, and they'll be relocated to the new settlement.
2: So our business depends on the tourism. There's nothing is
5: there to do. So one way or the other way, you know, life is finished.
10: As I gazed over the heaps of rubble that had been a thriving marketplace just days before, it occurred to me that travelers who love Hampi had lost something, too. The historic bazaar is now just another stone monument, protected, perhaps, but devoid of life. For The World, I'm Michael May.
0: It's truly an amazing scene, and we have a slideshow of the ruins and the bulldozers at (music) theworld.org. For our geo-quiz today, we're looking for a Mediterranean country. It's an island nation just south of the Italian island of Sicily and north of Libya in North Africa. And it's there that an unusual 1,200-mile-long train journey began, unusual because the train itself was made entirely out of Belgian chocolate. It was destined for Brussels, Belgium, to be a part of a culinary event celebrating all things chocolate. We'll tell you more about that later in the program. So you have a few minutes to come up with the name of this Mediterranean island nation where the chocolate train was made. Another food story, uh, a sad one from a place a lot of celebrity chefs are currently staking out.
7: Everybody is opening uh, a restaurant in Hong Kong. All the famous chefs in New York, uh, in Spain, in London are opening restaurants in Hong Kong because this is where uh, they think the money in the future is.
0: That's the BBC's Juliana Liu. She's been following the story of two young up-and-coming chefs who worked for British Celeb chef Heston Blumenthal, his fat duck restaurant in England, has garnered three Michelin stars. Blumenthal's two protégés happened to be in a Hong Kong taxi on Monday when one of the city's double-decker buses slammed into the cab, crushing it against another bus.
7: You have these two very young chefs who who, who died in the prime, uh, even before reaching the prime of their careers. They died together, and it was it's just very sad because, of course, uh, their boss, Mr. Blumenthal, had talked for a long time about wanting to open a restaurant in Hong Kong.
0: The driver of the taxi was also killed. Once the news broke, the hashtag Chefs Stand Together began making the rounds on Twitter. Napa Valley's The French Laundry tweeted Today, we have a heavy heart. The best children's stories aren't always just for children. You could say it about some of the Harry Potter series. You could certainly say it about a lot of the work of Philip Pullman. His best-known book here in the U.S. is The Golden Compass, part of the trilogy His Dark Materials. Now Pullman has taken on another series of tales that we think of as bedtime stories, retelling 50 fairy tales from the Brothers Grimm. Pullman is at his home in Oxford. Mr. Pullman, why did you decide to do this? Well, it was the
6: publishers who approached me um, and asked if I was interested, and it took me about half a second to decide that I was very interested indeed, because I love these stories. I've known them all my life. I used to teach them when I was training uh, students to teach, and um, we we looked at a number of these stories and discussed them, and I found them so interesting and so full of insights and uh, wit and um, all sorts of interesting things that I was very glad to come back to them and, and do my own versions of them.
0: And what was so instructive uh, about these uh, stories as teaching material? Uh,
6: r- surprise. I think when when people who think they know the story of Cinderella read the original Grimm's version of Cinderella, they, they meet things they hadn't expected before. A certain degree of brutality, for example, in the punishments of the uh, Uh, of the two sisters, the two cruel sisters. The fact that Cinderella doesn't have a fairy godmother in Grimm, there's a a hazel tree which she plants on her mother's grave. Things like that. We think we know these stories well, but we don't at all.
0: We've always known, I guess, that these Grimm's tales are are dark, uh, though, as you say, there's an element of surprise because maybe we get a sweetened version of them the way you recount them, there's a subtle sexuality on top of the brutality that I haven't really seen or even thought of before. For instance, in your telling of Rapunzel, she doesn't say to the witch, the prince is much faster climbing up the tower. Instead, she asks the witch, why are my clothes getting so tight, meaning she's <laughs> pregnant? Is this sexual side of the character something you've gleaned yourself in the tales over the years or something you decided had to happen, something you decided to add?
6: No, that's in the that's in the original telling of the stories, as as it is in Grimm. What happened in the um, in, in the course of the history of the Grimm stories is that through the seven editions that they put out from 1812, the first one, to eighteen fifty seven, the final one, was that they, they got more and more prim, more and more priggish, more prudish, we might say. Why the um the loss of Rapunzel's um, sexuality, so to speak, was something that's uh, attributable to the increasing piousness we could say of, of the Grimm's themselves because in the first version in 1812 there it is in in plain light she was pregnant mm. and it's not unusual because this is a story about pregnancy it's full of sexuality and fertility
0: and and also social commentary I think of Hansel and Gretel and the whole kind of front-loading of this very depressing climate that the family is poor and they, they don't know whether to keep the kids or not I'd for- completely forgotten about that
6: Exactly, that's another thing that gets um, gets glossed over and forgotten about. When we're telling stories, the stories to children at bedtime, we don't want to upset them too much by bringing in the you know the realistic details of rural poverty in um, medieval Germany or whatever it is. So we don't we don't mention that. But that's the reason for it. And it was um, it, it was out of that real background, that real and very distressing background, indeed for some, for, for many families in Central Europe at the time, that these stories were uh, were composed.
0: And yet here you are, you're adding all the gory details back into them. Are are these bedtime stories then?
6: Yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? Um, Well, I'm happy to read them at bedtime. I think if I were reading them to children, I'd choose a story that isn't that distressing. But um, the point about these stories is they weren't just intended for children. They were intended for the whole family.
0: You write comments at the end of each story, a bit of history, a bit of tracking the evolution of these tales. Do you feel there are indeed important points we've lost over time because the context has shifted or gotten diluted?
6: Yes, I do think that was important. I I thought from the beginning that I wanted to write notes after each story, partly because um, there were things I thought it would be interesting to know, like who was the original teller of the story? Who did the Grimm's get the story from? Mm. Um, I noticed on my reading of the stories that th- whenever I found one that was particularly neat and neatly told and uh, cleverly constructed, it was as often as not the work of a particular woman called Dorothea Feeman, who was one of their favorite tellers. I thought that was interesting to know and to pass on. The other things I wanted to talk about were... I was interested in how they work as stories, why this one, for example, falls apart in the middle. Is right. there anything we can do to tie it together? Um, why this one um, begins in a very dramatic way and then, and then tails off because we lose the uh, initial mo- – what's happened to it? So I was, my notes are really there for anyone who is interested in the business of storytelling. And that's why I wanted the notes close to the stories and not tucked away at the back. So I had great fun writing the notes, actually.
0: You make the point in your introduction that the characters in Grimm's fairy tales are conventional stock figures, that there's no psychology in a fairy tale, no interior life to the characters, that their motives are clear and obvious. It's kind of the diametric opposite of many characters in, in your own books, you know, characters that are developed in complex ways and imaginary worlds that are vivid and disturbing. So I'm wondering, was it a relief for you to work on these kind of easy stories?
6: Yeah, it's it's a very interesting business. This difference between the folk tale with its flat characters and the novel with its round characters. The the novel grew is essentially a realistic medium, and it, it grew up in the in the last three hundred years, I suppose. Um, as a way of describing society and talking about society and social relationships which involve real figures, real rounded human beings, or as much of real human beings as the novelist can make them. But fairy tales don't work like that. And if you try to put a character from a great novel, Jane Eyre, say, or Elizabeth Bennet from Pride and Prejudice, try to put a character like that into a fairy tale, they'd stick out like a sore thumb. It Mm. wouldn't work at all. The characters in fairy tales are flat. They're puppets. They're little stick figures. They're not um, human beings. That's one of the reasons why the stories are so quick, so fast-moving. And it was, a great, it was a great joy to work with characters like that. I've, I've written a few fairy tales myself, and I, I always welcome the, the company of these these masks, almost, these um, like mask-like characters from the Commedia dell'Arte, mm. uh, who have no, no, no depth, as you put it, no, no interior life. Um, but they're fast-moving, and they're quick, and they're funny, and they're delightful company.
0: Well, Philip Pullman, wonderful to speak with you. Thanks a lot. Uh,
6: Thank you. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you.
0: Philip Pullman's new book is Fairy Tales from the Brothers Grimm. It was published to coincide with the 200th anniversary of the first publication of Grimm's Fairy Tales. By the way, it's always useful to have these archetypes to reflect on current events. And I asked Philip Pullman whether he could come up with a fairy tale that worked as a parable for a current news story. You can check out his answer at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Let's get to the answer to our geo quiz now, which deals with one of our favorite subjects, chocolate. Yes, we're going to find out how the centerpiece of Brussels Chocolate Week was created. Andrew Ferruja is a pastry chef and a chocolate artist. Tell us what you created for Brussels Chocolate Week.
11: Uh, well, actually, I created a large uh, train locomotive. Uh, made entirely out of chocolate.
0: Right, over 100 feet long. and yes,
11: 112 it... feet long. It's like a 50, 60-year-old train. It's got, you know, all the chimneys and bells and those large wheels and everything. The coal, the shovel. Yeah, you've got almost
0: 2,800 pounds of very good Belgian chocolate to work with. What was the hardest part to carve out of chocolate?
11: Uh, what I do is normally I melt chocolate, it, create large slabs, and start cutting out pieces. Actually, it's constructed from approximately 6,430 different uh, hand-cut pieces. Wow. You know, you've got to be sure that you got the right measurements. Otherwise, when you come to put all pieces together, they won't fit. Another difficult part which I had uh, was to transport this strain from where it was actually made. I live in uh, the very beautiful, I have to say, country of Malta, you know, right in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And it was a long way for the train to go. So that was a very difficult part.
0: So listeners, if you were listening carefully to Mr. Feruja there, he uh, gave us the answer to the geo quiz. It is Malta. What other kinds of things have you carved out of chocolate, Andrew?
11: I also have done a full-size sculpture of your president, uh, Barack Obama. Wow. And I sculptured really? him from a, a one solid block using just a chisel and a hammer. I also did a Ford 1931 Model A car. You know, anything with art, I do it uh, in the same way with chocolate. Any suggestions
0: for uh, creative uses of chocolate for Thanksgiving?
11: If you're talking about something which could be eating, uh, there's uh, nice cherry and chocolate tarts. So you can use nice amarana cherries and you, you can make a beautiful chocolate uh, ganache on top with a nice crumb base on the bottom. I like to do that dessert myself.
0: Could I get you to uh, carve a chocolate turkey for me? If you
11: want me to, yes, I can. I can do anything in chocolate.
0: Andrew Ferruja, pastry chef and the artist who is responsible for a 100 plus long foot train made of chocolate. Andrew, great to speak with you.
11: Thank you very much, Marco.
0: You can see a picture of the edible train and get Andrew's recipe for cherry and chocolate tarts at theworld.org. Finally today, our global hit takes us to Canada's capital, Ottawa, where a Native American DJ collective hosts one of the hottest club nights in the city. A tribe called Red mixes electronic dubstep beats with traditional powwow singing and drumming, plus a dose of politics. North Country Public Radio's David Summerstein reports. It's the second Saturday of the month, Electric Pow Wow Night,
9: at Ottawa's trendy Babylon Club. Inside, a tribe called Red's three DJs, Indian, Bear Witness, and Shub, warm up the crowd with a bumpin' mix of dancehall and hip-hop. Brittany Jones and Marissa Martin sip cocktails in a cozy booth. They're both native, Chippewa and Mi'kmaq, respectively. They say the Electric Powwow is special for Aboriginal people particularly for students far from their homes and tribes.
11: Because when you're going to a regular club, you know, you're not really represented. You know that coming here, you're going to see a lot of other Aboriginal people, so it makes that, like, a sense of comfort, family, friends. Like, you know you're going to see people that you know.
9: But the best part, they say, is when the powwow beats come on.
11: It's really a new, like, genre of music. It's a party powwow.
9: (laughs) A tribe called Red calls it powwow step, And sure enough, the first mix of it they play, people jam the dance floor. It's so loud, the singing so powerful, the bass so deep and wobbly, the fabric on your clothes actually vibrates. It's dizzying. Tribe Called Red's Ian Campo, DJ Indian, sang in a powwow group when he was a kid in the Nipissing First Nation, north of Toronto. He says many young Aboriginal people bring that shared experience
0: to the electric powwow. It's, you know, a place where you, you meet people, it's a place where you dance, it's a place where you share songs, and it's, it, it's the same as a powwow, it just so happens that, you know, in an urban setting, in, in, in a modern setting, it takes place in a club. A
9: Tribe Called Red's name gives a nod to hip-hop pioneers A Tribe Called Quest. The red part represents indigenous people on the traditional medicine wheel. The band started when Compo and Bear Witness were DJing in the same club about five years ago.
0: My East Indian friends would have their brown parties, like in quotes, like brown parties is what they call it. And then, you know, there's Korean parties and there's all these like culturally significant parties that they'd have. And I realized that there wasn't really any representation like that for the aboriginal population in the city. So we just wanted to kind of throw one for that. Campo took a loop from a powwow song. Bear
9: Witness put a beat under it bear witness says that's when it all clicked
8: it was the, the the reaction from the from the aboriginal people in the crowd where they would take over the dance floor like they're this is this is us <laughs> now and they always like really just like push everybody back and we're going to take over this space which you know is again is something that you don't see come out of the aboriginal community enough
9: called red says the response from the powwow community has been really positive this is the group bear creek singing at the aquasasne mohawk powwow last summer bear creek singer gabe gaudet says a tribe called red is respecting the music and moving it ahead
0: it's
8: cool because it's uh
0: i've never heard our music our specific music done in that way and uh I just really like what they
9: do. A Tribe Called Red roots its music in indigenous politics that comes out sharpest in videos Bear Witness produces and projects at some shows. One called Indians in All Directions mashes up a Jamaican dancehall tune called Scalp Them with an old British TV variety show. Compo says the images show white people dancing in stereotypical Indian costumes.
0: so there's nothing really Aboriginal about it except for that we're remixing it. now we're decolonizing these these images and these songs, and we're pro- like we're taking that that power back ourselves
9: Two years ago, Compo and Bear Witness brought on Dan General, aka DJ Shubb a two-time Canadian turntable battle champion, and a tribe called Red soared from there. Dubstep King Diplo blogged about them. So did MTV. They have a new album they're giving away for free on their website. And they want to spread the electric powwows across Canada, continuing the process of carrying a cultural anchor into the DJ era. For The World,
0: I'm David Summerstein, Ottawa. You can see a video by A Tribe Called Red and download their album for free at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow.
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org. PRI Public Radio International